1: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, we have had a lot of requests to talk about Krampus lately. We
0: have this year.
1: And it's super cool, but he's become really high profile. So lots of people already do know a good bit about him. Uh, we are going to honor those requests and we're still going to talk about Krampus in this episode. But we're also going to talk about some other non-Santa holiday entities that are or have been popular in various cultures at one time or another. And while I want to talk about the Santa bot from Futurama, that is not really a cultural tradition. Uh, anybody who watches Futurama knows that it's a delight and that particular robot is a killer. Uh Same goes for the ice cream bunny and the Martians that Santa Claus battled in that one film and the Heat Miser and any of the ones from your childhood shows that you loved. Like those are all great characters. Uh Anyway, so we are not talking about any of those, even though they're wonderful. We're looking at actual, actual historically based cultural traditions here. And because there were so many of these figures, we're, uh we're we can't do it all in one part. So we're going to have two parts on this one. Today, we're covering three, and then there will be several more in the next episode. Yeah, for a nice
0: holiday week of holiday characters from around the world.
1: Yeah, it's a little on the peppier side, not so much with the sadness, not, Tracy. Not so
0: much with my solder Children <laughs> episode or last year's on the Christmas tree ship, which was just crushing. So, uh unless you've just not been in front of the television or the computer or anything, uh you've probably heard about Krampus. He's a horned, terrifying creature that puts a much more sinister spin on Christmas than St. Nicholas, for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, and now... Krampus has become so popular that there are parades in cities throughout Europe and the U.S. every year. He's really caught on. Atlanta has a Krampus parade every year. Uh, and this year, there is even a movie, which I think is part of the reason so many people have been emailing us about it. And the rise in popularity of Krampus in the U.S. is often credited to the desire for an antidote to the commercialization of Christmas. but. Most people, particularly non-Europeans, do not seem to know his actual origin story. They know what he is. They don't really have a sense
0: of the background. Right. So Krampus, in Austrian culture, is sort of the assistant to St. Nicholas. So whereas St. Nick is the harbinger of good tidings and gifts who comes on December 6th, Krampus is the holiday visitor you're a lot more likely to get if you have been ill-behaved. He comes on the night of December 5th, which is Krampusnacht. Uh, yes, and in case anyone is confused about the December
1: 6th thing not being December 25th, the day we celebrate Christmas, uh, that is, uh, the Feast of St. Nicholas normally, so not everyone moves it to that Saturnalia spot on the 25th. Uh, Krampus is a punisher. He carries sticks to beat unruly children, and the really bad children get stuffed in his sack. Uh, it's sort of the ultimate be good or else mythology. Uh, in terms of like holiday threats to keep kids in line, those kids that are in the sack, they get dragged back to Krampus's lair where they are tortured or eaten or both.
0: It's a much bigger threat than you'll get coal in your stomach.
1: Right? <laughs> coal is not delightful, but being beaten and then consumed by a horrible beast is a little more terrifying. Yeah,
0: He didn't start out as a, a Christmas creature at all, though. His origin is actually Norse. He's the son of Hel, the female god of the underworld. That means Krampus's grandfather is Loki. He's traditionally part of a pre-Germanic pagan tradition in Austria,
1: and that name Krampus, of course, also has nothing to do with Christmas. As a sidebar on that name, I highly recommend everyone to go searching, and perhaps we'll link to it in our show notes for the the um, clip of Christoph Waltz on Jimmy Fallon describing what Krampus is. <laughs> it, no one says anything better than Christoph Waltz to begin with, and when he talks about this, there is both delight and glee, and he takes a, a certain uh r- real pleasure, it seems, in telling this tale, and particularly saying the word Krampus, so I highly recommend
0: it. You say it so much more beautifully than I do. I'm like, Krampus? <laughs> Only
1: because I watch Christoph Waltz do it. 32 times yesterday,
0: <laughs> uh, because it is charming,
1: and I just adore him. So uh, that name is derived from the German word for claw, which is Krampen. And it's easy to see why that moniker would be chosen when you look at Krampus. As Tracy mentioned, he's got horns. He's hairy. Those horns are m- massive, and he has this terrifying demon face. And he's sort of like a big walking claw ready to snatch
0: children. His whole demonic presence was almost as undoing. In the 12th century, Krampus and his demon face were deemed a little too devilish for the Catholic Church, and that organization attempted to ban Krampus and all activities related to him. But instead of just doing away with Krampus, I've given up all attempts at saying it the way Holly does, uh, people just looped him into the celebration of St. Nicholas on December 6th instead.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly didn't happen magically and quickly like that, but it it is sort of a, a commingling of the two cultural traditions to come up with this this weird marriage and from there, the Krump- the Krampus tradition uh, grew and became more and more part of winter holiday tradition. So Krampusnacht parades became popular December 5th events uh, with many young men donning the guise of the scary but fun punisher of bad children to walk the streets menacingly. I read one report that was basically like, yeah, all these guys get together in their fursuits, they do a few shots, get a little drunk, and then they put on their masks and their horns and they just run through the streets sort of playfully terrifying people like they, they mess with everybody that they yeah see.
0: i i used my power of editorial director to nicely ask robert lamb of stuff to blow your mind uh if he could write an article about Krampus for us this year and he did um one of the things that he wrote about is that there's a fine line sometimes between like gleeful mischief <laughs> <Yeah>. and deliberately <laughs> horrifying small children yeah so he was once again under fire in the 1930s when the Christian Social Party outlawed him following the Austrian Civil War. Once again, because it's the saying he's the personification of evil. By that point, Krampus had become a, a lot more popular than Saint Nick himself, which is also something that that Robert talks about in his article about how a lot of times in parades that include both Saint Nick and and Krampus, they're like vastly outnumbered. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are way more Krampuses than Saint Nicks. Yeah,
1: and for much of the twentieth century, uh there were you know various other factions that have kind of tried to sweep him under the rug a little bit, but so he was on the DL. He really wasn't a big part of holiday celebrations for a while. But then in the late 20th century, that tradition was really revived. Uh, It wasn't like it ever completely went away, but it really got like a, a big resurgence of interest and it continues to gain steam.
0: But even in the modern era, Krampus has been targeted for the trauma that some parents believe that he can cause to children. A child psychologist named Max Friedrich raised some concerns about the scares that Krampus gave uh, back in 2006. And then more recently, over the last couple of years, as Austria welcomes Syrian and Iraqi ref- refugees, the country has sort of made efforts to educate the newcomers um about what this scary seeming beast is all about and now it's all in fun. Yeah,
1: there's really sort of a uh a, a little bit of a an image clarification. It's not so much a makeover as just commun- like good PR explaining like no no no, this you are not actually going to get stolen away because I can imagine a child fleeing a situation yeah. and going somewhere and then At this time of year, that's their introduction to a new culture. Like, that would be horrifying. By the way, you're going to be kidnapped and eaten. So they've they've really done a lot of outreach to try to explain, like, no, no, this is a tradition and it's all in fun and everyone is safe and there will be candy. It just looks a little scary. So, uh Just kind of a good way to manage something like that, I think, and hopefully that's been effective. Uh, We are going to talk next about a fun Italian figure that I really love. First, we're going to have a quick word from one of the great sponsors that keeps this show going. You may not think about the two words I'm about to say very much, and you may not even grasp their gravity and how important they are, but those two words are... Credit score, and they may not be the most exciting words to say, and maybe you don't want to think about it, but you really should. You might not even know what your credit score really is or what it really means, but that's cool. Credit Karma is here to help you. The people at Credit Karma know that your credit score can impact some of the most important things in your life. So your car and student loans to your credit card payments and rates. And that's why Credit Karma is going to give you completely free credit reports and scores. There are no hidden costs or obligation. It's fantastic. There is no catch. They never ask for your credit card number. Everything on their site is free. And they don't just give you your score and send you on your way. They actually break it down. They explain what it means. They show you how your actions can affect your credit score so that you can manage it the absolute best way. There is a load of useful information on their site. It's like having a really awesome advisor for free. Credit Karma knows that your score isn't something that you're always going to think about. So they even offer you free alerts so that if something fishy comes up, if there's some dicey action going on with your credit cards, for example, you can check your report and see if it's legit. To get in on this, just text HISTORY to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. And you will quickly see why more than 45 million Americans have also used Credit Karma to monitor their score. And yes, it really, really is free. They do not ever ask you for your credit card. This is one of those instances where ignorance is not bliss. Get your free credit report today by texting HISTORY to 89800 to download that free Credit Karma app right
0: now. And now we'll hop back into our story. So next we're going to talk about La Bafana. Italy It's a wonderful witchy lady in its winter holiday traditions. This is an old hag named La Bafana who visits riding a broom on the night of January 5th and in the wee hours of January 6th, so at Epiphany. Uh, that is, in Christian religious terms, the day that commemorates when the Magi got to see the newborn Christ child, and thus that was the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. But on first glance, uh,
1: particularly for those of us that did not grow up with La Bufana, and she's sometimes also just called Bufana, uh, she doesn't really seem to fit any of the traditional religious mythology. But her name is, in fact, a derivation of the word Epifania, which is the Italian word for
0: epiphany. And in many ways, she has a lot in common with Santa Claus. So Italian children write bu- uh, write Bufana letters in the weeks leading up to her visit, letting her know what's on their wish lists. To ensure that she graces them with gifts instead of coal. They're also in their best behavior. Families leave out a glass of wine and some sausage and broccoli for La Bufana when they go to bed on January 5th. I would be down with that meal. is (laughs) why I'm chuckling. (laughs) Um, Children hang stockings for her to fill. And she often comes in through the chimney. So there's a lot of parallels there.
1: Yeah, uh, it makes me laugh that you thought that was a good meal. Because one of the writers that was writing about this tradition was saying like... That's a much healthier, better option than what Santa usually gets. Although if she also. drinks wine at every house, I don't know that you could continue that claim, but
0: well yeah, it depends on how how heavy that sausage is. Right. Balance in all things. But if you're only eating cookies
1: and milk all night, that's kind of a recipe for a number of medical issues. Yeah. Uh and while this may all seem distant, as I kind of mentioned earlier, from the story of Christ's birth, there's actually a tie-in in the mythology. Uh, So La Bafana, according to legend, was a widow who had also lost her child, living alone in the Italian hillside when Jesus was born.
0: Bafana saw the bright light in the sky that's associated in Christianity with the birth of Christ, so the Star of Bethlehem. And initially, she ignored this light. But then, the three wise men stopped by her house on their journey to find the newborn Son of God. And after enjoying her hospitality, they invited her to come along with them. Initially, she declined to come along, but then she reconsidered after they left and decided that because she loved children, she would catch up to the wise men and travel along with them after all.
1: And carrying some baked goods and her broom, which she was bringing in case Mary wanted her to help out by tidying up the manger, uh, Bafana left her home, but she could not find the wise men. She was trying to catch up to them, but she couldn't and she became lost. And angels appeared in some tellings of the story when she was just near exhaustion. And they used magic to enchant Bufana's broom so that she could ride it. And so the kindly old woman
0: continued her search, riding her broom for the baby Jesus. She never found him, which made me so sad. Yeah. But her search continues, and every epiphany, she rides her broom looking for the child. And because she loves all children, she leaves gifts for all that she visits. And traditionally, the gifts that she leaves are reminders of the story of Jesus.
1: There are some other variations on the Labafana story, if you read various accounts, uh, including ways that her child or children, there's again, as a mythology, there's some details that shift a lot, uh, including the ways that her offspring died. And in some, her intent is actually to give her deceased kids belongings to Mary's newborn. Uh, but though all of these stories center on Labafana deciding to go see the infant Christ, in reality, her roots are in paganism
0: which is a case for many traditions. Yes, Uh, In some old pagan rituals, an elderly woman would be burned in the center of a town to symbolize the end of one year and the beginning of another. Celtic ceremonies in the Alps involved wicker puppets similarly burned to represent the death of the old and the restoration and renewal of the new year.
1: And European folklore in various locations has considered the time between Christmas and the Epiphany as it kind of merged... Uh, the re- Christianity along with their, their pagan rituals as sort of a time of witches and magic with the epiphany considered the most magical night of the year. So Bafana ties into this idea of magic overlapping, uh, and the idea of renewal in the new year. So if you did the Venn diagram of Christianity and paganism, that's kind of right where mm-hmm. La Bafana lands.
0: She's further linked to the New Year in her association with the ancient Roman goddess of the New Year, Strina, also seen as Strenia and Strenua. And this also provides kind of an alternate origin story to her her name as instead being rooted in the word Bastrina, which were gifts that were linked to that goddess. So yeah I love her. I She's love when so you sweet. see
1: pictures of of women dressed as Bafana during Christmas celebrations in Italy because I love witchy things anyway like this the the iconography of the classic witch is yeah. one that I have been in love with since I was a child. So to kind of plop that in the middle of Christmas is like,
0: that is my kind of Christmas. <laughs> I love her. I, you, There's I only, such
1: sweetness to it. I knew
0: nothing about this until you told me. And I was like, but no, I love that. That's the I best do. idea. It's
1: very sweet. It's um As it's been adopted and evolved, it's become this nice grandmotherly figure that, you know, cares about kids and comes with candy and kind of love. I love it. Next, we are going to talk about Sinterklaas, and my first introduction to Sinterklaas was actually through my husband, who is not Dutch, but for a while he worked for a weather company that was doing weather. It's like the Weather Channel, but for the Netherlands at the time. I don't think it exists anymore, and they had to do Sinterklaas coverage around the holidays, <laughs> so he was the first person that told me this story, and some elements of it Left me agog. <laughs> did they did they track Santa Claus like Norad tracks Santa? They did. Uh, but because he hangs around for a lot longer, it was a much lengthier tracking situation than a one-night deal.
0: <laughs> so, as we just alluded to, the Netherlands twist on St. Nicholas is called Santa Claus and comes with some baggage, which we will talk about. But first we are going to give more of a rundown of the Santa Claus tradition. So
1: while December 6th is the main event for Sinterklaas, just as for St. Nicholas in other cultures, his holiday journey starts well before that in November. So traditionally on a morning in mid-November, Sinterklaas arrives, usually in Amsterdam is the big one, via a steamboat. He comes from Spain. And for this large one in Amsterdam, he normally appears on the Amstel River at the dock and docks a little while later, so they take time, they cover him coming up the river in his steamboat. And he's then greeted by a public official, usually such as the mayor. And then Sinterklaas mount mounts a white or sometimes grey horse to parade through the city.
0: I love how he comes from Spain. Honestly. <laughs> like I be this is like a story that a child is telling me <laughs>
1: It's like a penny cartoon, if you remember those (laughs) from Phoebe's Playhouse.
0: It is. So the parade normally starts a little after noon, and it takes a couple of hours traveling through the city. In addition to Sinterklaas, there are uh, brass bands, floats, clowns, and Pieten. Pieten are Sinterklaas' helpers, and we're coming back to them in a little bit. At the end of the parade, Sinterklaas addresses the children and parents of the Netherlands, and there are often smaller Sinterklaas parades held all over the Netherlands.
1: And this mid-November arrival is actually the start of Sinterklaas' season. So from this point until December 6th, Sinterklaas and all his helpers travel throughout the Netherlands. They visit schools and hospitals. They do some charity work. They also keep an eye out uh, to check on the behavior of children, even listening at chimneys to see how kids are behaving when they can't see Sinterklaas watching. And during this time, children leave shoes out, often accompanied by carrots or hay for Santa Claus's horse, in the hopes that the Peeton will leave them candy, ginger biscuits, oranges, and small gifts in their shoes. And Sinterklaas and the Peeton will sometimes visit houses multiple times during this November to December 6th period. Uh so kids will sometimes get like little small gifts during that time multiple times. And then the big event is still the sixth, though.
0: This elongated celebration of Sinterklaas started in the 1930s. Before that, the Dutch St. Nick simply came in on December 6th to bring gifts. But now there's a whole shopping and celebrating block of the calendar that's he- heralded by this November arrival of Claus. So it's not entirely unlike Thanksgiving signaling the official start of the holiday shopping se- uh, season in the U.S., even though some places put that more in like August now. <laughs> We talked about that on our previous podcast that we used to host together called Pop Stuff. Right. On
1: Holiday Creek. We did. I'm the only person that it doesn't bother, apparently. And I I had to laugh. It's one of those things, too. Again, I will uh, throw my friends under the bus. But when you're telling people things that you're working on and they respond in ways where they're like, that's weird. That's just commercialism to have Sinterklaas come in November. And I'm like, do you not watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day (laughs) (laughs) Parade? I know. Like... Don't don't think of it like that's strange and other, just look no. at it in parallel to what we all experience. Totally. So then after at the end of this season on the night of December 5th, Santa Claus rides his horse throughout the country delivering gifts and treats, sometimes little uh sugary treats in burlap sacks. But that is for the good children. Uh the bad children get carted away by the peathen and taken to Spain. What a terrible fate. I'm thinking like, maybe I'm bad. I get a vacation. <laughs> and just as St. Nicholas has Krampus or uh, has Krampus in Austria, Sinterklaas has a counterpart who deals with unruly children. And that is where the baggage that we mentioned earlier comes in. We are going to talk about that baggage and some of the the battles waging culturally around it right after we have a word from one of our fabulous sponsors.
0: So you and I uh, are currently recording a super marathon session of all of the podcast episodes, we are running through the end of the year, which means we've been doing a ton of research online, a ton of looking stuff up, a ton of trying to find lots and lots of cool things to talk about, which can be a little tiring. It's a little hard to sort through all the stuff. It can be, yeah. And if you want to get to really the good stuff, the premium articles, the premium content, and you don't want to waste your time uh, picking through all of the chaff to find the wheat, a good option is texture. Texture is the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone or tablet. You can browse hundreds of magazines and just cherry-pick the ones that interest you the most. The Texture editorial team also recommends stories every day, and there are curated collections to let you dive deeper into topics. You can sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to the very best reads plus exclusive content with full access to the top magazines of just about every interest. I mean, the offerings are really all over the board. Texture is one present that people will open again and again if you're looking for some uh, last-minute holiday options. The best part, Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash history. Even better, you can give Texture as a gift between now and December 31st. So think about that. Unrestricted access to the world's best magazines, from back issues to the ones that are on newsstands today. Order this fantastic gift for you or a loved one before December 31st. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash history. And now we'll get back to our story. So back to the Petan, the helper's. Uh, specifically, a helper named Zvarta Pete. Pete translates to Black Peter, and he and the other Petun in these center uh, class celebrations often appear in blackface. The tradition of the center class parade and his Moorish slave, Black Pete, started in the late 1800s, and at that time, blackface would not have really raised people's eyebrows. And for a long time, it kind of a surprisingly long time, really, it continued. Not to raise anyone's eyebrows. The solidification of this Sinterklaas story is sometimes
1: credited to a book that was published in 1850, so a little before this really got a big swell in the late 1800s. That book is titled St. Nicholas and His Servant, and it's written by Jan Schenkman. And this is the first known writing that clearly outlines all of the traditions of Sinterklaas, including that steamboat and the horse riding and, of course, Black Peter. And while there are some mentions of Sinterklaas in earlier literature that mention a servant of color accompanying him, this is really when the story of a Moorish slave was written into the narrative in clear terms that we know of.
0: But even though the story of St. Nick and his servant was published in the mid-1800s, the mythology was still evolving into the 20th century. Uh The name, for example, was not uniform for some time. And written accounts naming St. Nicholas' servant include all kinds of different names. Sometimes he was just named Jan or Pete, which were common servant names. In 1911,
1: a picture book was published with some of the most popular images of St. Nick's dark-skinned slave, dressed in 17th-century garb. And at this point, there was just one Pete. So we've mentioned that he comes a lot of times in parades with Peaton, with many of them. But at this point, there was just the one in the narrative. But by the 1920s, this portrayal was really cemented in the cultural consciousness. And part of the problem that people point to later on is that he was really portrayed as a halfwit. He only spoke broken Dutch and he wasn't really very bright at all.
0: Zwarte Pete evolved further, eventually becoming less of a buffoon and more lovable. Although he was still portrayed as a slave or servant to Sinterklaas, and some characterizations of him indicated that his black skin was actually the result of soot coming from going down chimneys and not a difference in his race. However, he had kinky—he still had kinky, curly hair, and his clothes were clean despite of this, despite the soot that was purportedly blackening his skin. Yeah, if you look at pictures of him even now, it's like
1: looking at sort of standard blackface that we've seen throughout the years where, you know, the lips are drawn very big in red Mm -hmm. and then the skin is obviously painted a very even tone and the curly wig. It's clearly a a heavy exaggeration yeah. of
0: racist stereotypes. Yeah. Is how you would describe that in a sentence.
1: Completely. Uh Zwarta Pete went from being just the one servant to a whole horde of Petin over the years. And people have been dressing in blackface to disguise themselves as Petin and celebrate the winter holidays for decades. Like many people dress up as a Pete and go out to party uh during this this stretch of time. And Zwarte Pietin uh, has appeared on postcards and other memorabilia,
0: and these Piets has really been a well-loved part of the festivities. Until 1968. That's the first time on record that someone, this was a woman named M.C. Grinbauer, brought up the idea that Zwarte Piet was inappropriate, pointing out that while slavery had long been abolished in the Netherlands, Sinterklaas' companion was still being represented as a slave.
1: And it, it really did take a little while for a more widespread discussion about the black-faced Zwarte Pete to happen. And even so, this is an issue that continues to the moment we are recording this in December of 2015 to be hotly debated. As of
0: literally yesterday. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, if you look at our show notes this time, you will see things that are coming out sort of right here at the beginning of December when we're recording. So while some claim that the image of Pete is harmless and in good fun, uh, many others have cried foul and said that it's flat out racism. And the battle between those who wish to hold on to this tradition and something that they really think of quite lovingly from their childhood and those who wish to do away with the symbol and the inherent negative messages attached to it really rages on. And I'm not downplaying I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say it rages on. people are very angry on both sides mm-hmm. of this equation.
0: Definite both sides anger. Protests against Zwarte Pete have really grown in recent years, and in 2013, the U.N. Human Rights Commission looked at the Zwarta Pete issue. The uh, UNHRC committee chair, Vereen Shepard of Jamaica, made a statement before the committee met saying that, quote, this is a throwback to slavery and that in the 21st century, this practice should stop." Additionally, an application filed by the St. Nicholas Society
1: of the Netherlands to have Sinterklaas included on the UNESCO list of intangible heritage was returned to them. Uh, it was denied for the moment until something could be done about this problem of Zwarte Piet.
0: There has, perhaps surprisingly, been huge pushback in the Netherlands, and many continue to include Zwarte Piet in their celebrations. Just a few weeks ago, the Dutch Embassy in Canberra, Australia, held a center-class parade with a full complement of black-faced attendants.
1: Yeah, that uh, brought up a lot of... News coverage and, again, anger on both sides. People really defend their desire to include this thing that they loved when they were a kid. And to them, it's a character they love. They aren't really willing to see the other side. I I don't know how to fix it. Everybody has this. This is a battle we fight in the U.S. all the time of tradition versus, like, changing social values. Yeah, well,
0: and the... I actually was really interested to learn about this in the outline because, like, the United States history has a, as to my knowledge, a much more lengthy and and deep history of minstrel shows mm-hmm. that had characters in blackface that came along like during the Civil War and afterward and were deeply offensive and like I have seen people say well, you can't ap- apply things from American culture to these other cultures. And I'm realizing that it, that's not what's happening here.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's not what's
0: happening here. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating.
1: And what's really interesting is they're taking sort of an interesting approach. Uh, there are some some interesting efforts being made to try to soften the Black Peter issue and transition the character to a less offensive version, but still find a way to include this part of holiday traditions that so many people love and they're not quite ready to part with. So uh Pete's, for example, in Amsterdam have been encouraged that if they are going to do the blackface to have smaller lips to not be quite the level of caricature uh racial stereotyping that it has been. They're not allowed to wear gold earrings and they're not. Supposed to be doing those curly haired wigs. The hair should be softer. And an additional transformation, uh, including the painting of Pete's in many colors. Uh, which they tried at one point to do this mythology where they um the Peets were coming to the U.S. in one story, and they passed through a rainbow, and it colored them all different colors, and a lot of people hated it and got really mad about it. Um, But they're trying to incorporate that and suggest that maybe we should do other colors, and that way it's still this interesting, colorful character, and I use that in the not racially loaded sense, colorful character, uh, that you can still love and it's still similar to what you had when you were a kid, but it is not kind of connected to all of those racial issues that it currently has. So that plan to change the peats to different colors and continue to kind of switch up the image slowly and transition it is expected to be integrated into celebrations in Amsterdam over the course of the next several years.
0: The Sinterklaas legend dates back to the 4th century when Nicholas, the bishop of Myra, came to came from modern-day Turkey. And there's some fuzziness about how exactly Sinterklaas ended up making his home in Spain. The most likely story is that when Spain ruled land in the Netherlands in the 16th and 17th century, the lore shifted to make this uh, most benevolent holiday figure to become a son of Spain. And now uh I, I kind of put that bit at the end
1: because it seems like, you know, we're once again in an evolution of uh at least in terms of his relationship with his now friend rather than slave. That's another shift that's happened. He's a friend of Sinterklaas. He is not his servant. Uh, but we're going to be watching history unfold in real time in the coming years around what's going to happen. And we'll see what happens as every culture evolves. There are going to be. Elements of iconography and much-loved things that are no longer really appropriate. But there's that argument always of you don't want to throw everything out of a tradition because some people still love it and it has a good meaning to them. But at the same time, you can't just let things stay forever stagnating. Right. Something that is maybe not so great.
0: Well, and a lot of depictions that I have seen of Zwarte Piet uh, remind me of... Salt shakers you would find in an antique store that are from the 40s yes. that are offensive <laughs> today. Yeah. And, like, y- you could have that in a museum in in a display that talks about, like, the cultural signifiers of slavery and, and how they came to be part of this, this everyday life for a lot of people. Uh, you would not want to have that on your Dinner table, if you were a uh, you know progressively minded person,
1: yeah, yeah, so like I said, we get to kind of watch history unfold before us because while it's happening in the present day, this will be a history that people talk about for a long time, I imagine because it is an interesting example of how a culture is trying to find a way to deal with this clash of of tradition and uh modern values so.
0: I kind of wish from had... that
1: point of view, I'm excited about it, just kind of watching how it's gonna play out,
0: yeah, I kind of wish we had that listener mail about uh about the the college mascot being the rebels,
1: oh yeah, and there are several more interesting characters that are celebrated as part of winter holidays around the world, and we are going to talk about those, but not this time, uh, so next time around, there will be more holiday fun because yeah. there are more characters to talk about. Some of them are delightfully kooky, uh, but first I have listener mail. I have three pieces of listener mail, Tracy. Okay. I know that might sound extreme, but I feel bad because we get hundreds we get so much. a day
0: sometimes, and we only read two a week. Yeah. And I feel bad because there are lots of good ones that don't always get played. So, we they have so I have four or five things in my inbox that are things that that where I want to answer that, and now the thing that someone has asked was asking about has passed. Yeah. like I'm gonna go on a road trip. Do you have suggestions for this place that I'm going? And I'll be, Oh yeah, I want to answer that. And the, oh, that person's road trip is gone.
1: I feel slightly better knowing that happens to you too.
0: Oh yeah. In my head,
1: you never drop that ball, nope. but I feel like I just drop the ball on the ground and I end up somewhere else.
0: Like I don't I'm, even know. Then I'm embarrassed. And sometimes I write I'm like, I'm so sorry I didn't send you any ideas before you yeah. we're not we always say this. We're not ignoring anybody on
1: purpose. There's just there is definitely a um a volume to human time ratio that's yeah. a little bit difficult to navigate. We do times. read all of
0: them. We read all of them. Thank uh, you so much for sending email. We do read all of them. Yeah. So for this
1: one, uh, like I said, I have three. None, none of them are terribly long. The first one is from our listener, Matt, and he is writing about our uh, declaration of sentiments episode. And he says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I'm a long time listener and a huge fan. I honestly think I learn more from the podcast than when I learn than what I learned in my U.S. history class. Uh, I'm currently a junior in high school. I'm writing in regards to your most recent episode, The Road to the Declaration of Sentiments. You mentioned Lucretia Mott, and I squealed with joy. As you mentioned, she attended and later worked at Nine Partners Boarding School. Well, here I am, over 150 years later, attending the same school, which has changed names but is deeply rooted in its history. I'm actually the first and only student archivist at my school. The school changed names in 1858 when it moved to Union Springs, New York to friends Academy. And then in 1876 to Oakwood seminary. And then in 1921 changed to Oakwood school and moved back to the Hudson Valley where nine partners originated. The final name change was in 1996 when they changed the name to Oakwood friends school. I am very proud to say I have attended the school since sixth grade and even prouder to say I'm the first student archivist. Uh, that is so very, very cool. Uh, he also mentions that James Mott was actually a bit older than Lucretia Coffin Mott and was for a very short time her teacher uh, before she later was older and they became a couple and got married. Uh, all the best. So that is very cool, Matt. That's such a, a fabulous connection. We always love when people write to us with their direct connections to history that we've talked about on the podcast. Yeah, You don't get much more direct than that. Nope. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he also sent us some cool links about the school. It was very, very cool. We appreciate it. Uh, the next one is from our listener, Peter, and it is about our, uh, diving podcast. And I'm not gonna, uh, Read the whole thing, uh, because as I said, I'm reading several, but he says, uh, the thing that actually prompted me to finally email you is that I think you missed some significant developments in the history of diving equipment. And we mentioned that we would because we can't do the whole thing, but the thing he brings up is really cool. He says, specifically, I'm thinking of a diving suit shown in Hans Talhofer's 1459 manuscript. If any of our listeners don't know what that is, it is a medieval Warfare manuscript. Uh, it's a full-body leather suit with a hose for air, which was most likely provided by Bellows. Supposedly, this section of his manuscript is basically a copy of an older work, Bellafortis, written by Conrad Kaiser between 1402 and 1405, but I haven't seen that book myself. You can find scans of Talhofer's book online, and he gives us a link, although that link did not work for me, uh, but then... He uh, links us to a video about, he says, quote, some crazy Danish guys actually built a similar diving apparatus, which can be seen in this video. Uh, and it's very fascinating because, one, the one in Talhoffer's manuscript looks fantastically cool and creepy, which always gets me. I love any cool and creepy design. And two, uh, in this video that he links to, they built this, uh, you know, ancient style diving suit and it they actually take it in the water and it it does in fact work and it's quite cool so we will um hopefully i will remember to put a link to that in my stuff that i send off to tracy to include in show notes uh so cool thank you for sending that peter because i really was blown away by the absolutely gorgeous and fabulous design of that diving suit it looks like something out of um like a mike mignola comic so (laughs) so i was of course very happy with it. Uh, our next one is from our listener, Ray, uh, and it is about also a brief history of diving technology. It says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've loved this podcast for quite a while now and appreciate how it has added more interesting and substantial background to many topics I've been learning while in college. I wanted to let you know that from my understanding, gleaned from my history of scientific revolution of the 17th century class at the University of Texas, uh, Austin, Philosophical Transactions, which was a, a book that we referenced in the podcast, was actually the scientific journal of the Royal Society of London. The journal was started by the society's first secretary, Henry Oldenburg, and was the means of communicating the Society's experiments and findings to other scientific men. It was through Oldenburg and Philosophical Transactions that Isaac Newton contacted the Royal Society to inform them of his findings regarding light color and his hand-built reflecting telescope. In the podcast, you mentioned that Philosophical Transactions is a work of Edmund Halley's. His article is merely one included in the Royal Society's scientific journal. I hope you two keep going with the podcast for a long time. I really enjoy your enthusiasm for the topics you discuss and the dynamic you two uh, the two of you have adds to the fun factor of the podcast so thank you Ray that's a, a cool little tidbit that did not quite sift out in my research so I appreciate it uh, soon to be graduating so congratulations uh, on your hard work if you would like to write to us and add to that wondrous um Stream of communication that we get. You can do so at History Podcast at House to You can connect with us at Facebook.com slash Mist in History, on Twitter at Mist in History at Pinterest.com slash history at mist_in_history.tumblr.com, on Instagram we're at history. there are lots and lots of ways if you would like to learn a little bit about what we talked about today uh, and it's really what we talked about today you can go to our parent site HowStuffWorks type in Krampus and you will get that article that Tracy mentioned by Robert Lamb Oh, well, where did Krampus come from? Uh, there are also other cool articles on our site. And you can visit us at mistinhistory.com if you would like an archive of every episode of the podcast ever. Plus show notes of every podcast that has featured Tracy and me. Plus occasional other goodies. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. It's been almost 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Theosa And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A podcast! podcast.